Well, good morning, church. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rod Klinger, and my darling wife Dasha and I have been calling this church our home for about 17 years now. Our kids have been coming here since before they were born. <laughs> In all of that time, I have preached exactly once about three years ago. I'm really slow to write <laughs> sermons. Uh, sermons are actually kind of a torture test for me, but I always learn and grow through them. And it makes me appreciate all the more what Rob does week in and week out for us. Thank you, Rob. Now, I'm really excited to talk to you today. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, which is absolutely loaded with incredible things. So last week, Rob talked about unity, and the text he used was from Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, unity and transformation are two of the major themes in the entire book of Ephesians. Today, I'm going to be talking about being blessed in relationships, and the text I'm going to be using is out of Ephesians chapter 5. It's a passage that actually has given a lot of people a lot of heartburn over a lot of years. Some people call it one of Paul's problem passages. He's got a few of those. And while it's tempting to just kind of bleep over it and pretend it doesn't exist, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God to us today, and we do believe that, you kind of have to wrestle with it. Now, the good news is that once you understand where it's coming from and where it's going to, it's really kind of cool. I have to tell you, though, in true confession, right, it took me a very long time to come to that viewpoint. So I remember hanging out with my college pastor back in the 1980s, and the conversation turned to Paul's writings. I blurted out, oh, I hate Paul. He kind of did a double take, and he asked me why that was. And I said, well, because I think he's a sex-obsessed woman hater. <laughs> Oops, not a great thing to say to my pastor. <laughs> but he was really good about it. He said, Rod, you don't understand. Uh, you can't look at first-century writings with 20th-century eyes, it was a while ago, and assume it just translates right over. You have to understand the context he's working in. Paul is actually kind of giving women a blank check here. Now, I looked at him really doubtfully, so we talked through some of it, and then he gave me a few books that helped me to understand a little bit more what was going on. It started for me a lifelong interest in finding out actually what is Paul saying to women, because it can be pretty hard to understand. So now I have a much bigger stack of books, and I have folders full of various papers that I've printed out, and I have tons of bookmarks on my browser, and it's actually really fun to dig into it. I'm hoping today we can dig into it together. You ready for that? Yeah. Cool. Now, just so I don't stress anybody out too much, let me start with my conclusion. 
We are blessed in relationships when we lay down our agendas and seek the other person's highest good. This is true in all of our relationships, and particularly so in marriage. Now, that's really hard to do. And in fact, we can't do it. So if I was giving you a self-help kind of talk, I would end it right now. <laughs> but as we let the Holy Spirit work through us, as we let Jesus flow into us, it becomes easier. And the love and the joy and the gentleness kind of bubble out of us. So the other thing to note here is that the scripture I'm going to be using talks a lot about marriage. And I know that there's lots of people in the congregation here who either aren't married Kids, I'm really glad you're not married. Um, have been burned by marriage, or were married at some point, or folks who have kind of tough marriages going on right now. I hope that you guys will stay with me through this, because there's a lot in this passage that really applies to everybody. All right? So with that said, let's jump into the scripture. The first sermon I ever heard about Ephesians 5 started here. Here. It had a cool heading saying, Marriage, Christ and the Church, to let you know what it was about. That actually isn't in there in the Greek manuscripts. That was put in by helpful translators trying to help us understand it. And right after that, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ooh, silence. <laughs> but that's pretty straightforward, right? It kind of tells you what's up. Kind of tongue-in-cheek, I imagined it worked a little bit like this. So, guys win, girls lose, done. Unfortunately, taken out of context and read by itself, it does kind of sound like that. And as a liberated guy, that really bugs me. And yet, in some churches and some cultures, it still gets read that way. If you take it in its proper context, it's completely different. It's not saying that at all. But then you have to get into, okay, what's the context? And to get to the context, you have to take a look at the culture that Paul was working in. Who was his audience? You have to take a look at the words Paul was using and the grammar and how he structures it. You have to think about what it meant for the people he was writing to then. And only then can you actually understand what it might mean to us now. So I'm hoping we can jump into that a little bit. The first step there is to understand the culture. The Roman culture was very patriarchal. Uh, the guy was in charge, right? There were very strict social strata, different social layers. And in fact, it was even legislated what certain different social layers could wear. So only the emperor could wear a purple toga. The senators could wear a toga with a big purple stripe, you know, etc. It was pretty strict. Now, 
Paul's audience was primarily Roman householders, the folks that ran houses, which would be men, right? And the household in Rome was considered kind of a mini empire. And the father of the household, or the oldest man, was considered kind of a mini emperor. He had the power. The father of the house had three main relationships. There was the father-child relationship. There was the master-slave relationship. There was the husband-wife relationship. And in each case, he was the powerful one. He had the power of life and death, literally, over his kids. So a baby's born, he doesn't really want that baby, maybe it looks defective, maybe it's a girl and he wants a boy. He can say, expose that baby. And they would take it out to the dump and leave it to die. Interestingly, the early Christians put together teams that would go retrieve these babies, save them and raise them. But he had power all through the kids' lives over who they married, what they could do. He was in charge. Masters had similar power over slaves. He could, of course, buy and sell them, even if that meant that it was splitting up parents and kids or couples. It didn't matter. He could beat them. He could, in some instances, kill them. He could have sex with them, whether they wanted to or not. Or if he wanted to make a few extra bucks, he could force them into prostitution. They were his property. He could do with them as he pleased. He had big power over his wife. So women in Rome typically got a rudimentary education, if anything, right? A girl would, it was more of a transactional sort of thing, marriage was. Um, a girl might get married as early as age eight, but more typically between 12 and 17. And they didn't last that long. A lot of them died during childbirth. So the average age in one study of ancient Rome was about 23 years at death. They didn't last that long. The woman had no power in public, uh, certainly had no vote. The ideal Roman woman was quiet, subservient, productive at home, helped with raising the kids and running the household. So in this patriarchal culture, had Paul started out with 522, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, it would have been ugh, a big yawn. Thanks for stating the obvious, dude. Is there anything else? But Paul is being really sneaky. He's using this as an inroad that everybody understands to completely transform all of the relationships in the Roman household. Now, we'll get into the what's in a little bit, but first you kind of have to ask, why would he do this? You might recall that uh, Jesus calls all people to himself, right? The book of John, I think it's 10.22, something like that, it might be 12.32. He's saying, and when I am lifted up, I will call all people to myself. It is his desire, it is his passion. Jesus was not a big fan of hierarchy. So, for instance, this is one of my favorite passages, actually. Being God... He didn't assume that he needed to hang on to being God. It wasn't a status kind of thing. But he gave that up to come and be with us. 
while he was here, he hung out with the social outcasts, right? The sinners, the tax collectors, the poor, the sick. And yes, he interacted a lot with the Pharisees and the social hierarchy higher-ups, um, mostly to chew them out, it would seem, for missing the boat in their teaching. He turned expectations of leadership absolutely upside down. So at the Last Supper, he's talking to the disciples, and he says, in this world, the kings and the great men lorded over their people. And yet they're called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like the servant. There's Jesus' attitude toward hierarchy. Now, Paul also wasn't big on hierarchy. And if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, where we were last week, you find he had a really diverse church. He had both men and women in the church, and remember, women were typically kind of excluded from these things. He had masters and slaves in the church. He had Jews and Gentiles in the same church. And Acts 19 actually has a cool story about how that happened in Ephesus. But Jews wouldn't normally associate with Gentiles. He had liars. So he says, you know, let's stop lying to each other and tell each other the truth, because we're members of one body. He had people with anger issues. So he said, let's give up all rage and anger and bitterness and slander. He had criminals. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but should do something productive with their hands so that they may have something to share with those in need turning even criminals inside out and changing motivations. He hated cliques, and not only did he want these people to get along, but he wanted them to actively love each other. So the book of 1 Corinthians has this long section where he's chewing them out for doing a common meal where everybody comes together in a wrong way that kind of reinforced social divisions. He hated that sort of stuff. If you think about it, he's really living out what, well, the church is living out what Paul wrote so eloquently later in Galatians 3, for you are all children of God. Let me read that again. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Now remember what I said earlier, it's like putting on, you are now part of the Jesus social class. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there's a huge lesson here for us. No matter who you are, no matter what your history, no matter what you've done, no matter how important or unimportant you feel you are, Jesus invites you into relationship with him. He doesn't see any difference there. And Jesus invites you into his church. And as you soak in his love, your heart will be changed forever. This is what Jesus does. Now, Paul is also a non-hierarchical guy in a hierarchical culture. He couldn't say, let's have a revolution. The Romans were already really nervous about these guys. But by bringing Jesus into the picture, all of these relationships get transformed. That's why 
he writes this. All right, so back to our scripture. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's a problem here. The problem is this. Everybody say, Hupatasso. Bless you. Hupatasso is the Greek word for submit. Now, as we read it today, it might mean, I crush you, submit, or resistance is futile, submit, or, oh, honey, I know you think it's wrong, but I'm the man. Now, those are all really mistaken and hurtful ways to use submit. I think what Paul's actually doing here is he's saying voluntarily yielding in love or preferring the other person or deferring to the other person. But there's an even bigger problem. Hupatasso is actually not in verse 22. Yeah, sure, some scribe later wrote it into the manuscript to try to be helpful, right? But if you look back to some of our oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts, it doesn't even have a verb. It says, wives to your own husbands. Wives what? Well, to get that, you actually have to go back to the previous verse, verse 21, which says, uh, it's actually the slide before that, I think. There we go submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Aha! So, wives submitting to husband is actually a case in point for submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's an example that everybody Paul was writing to would have understood. Beep, beep, beep. And the husbands would have really been annoyed because it's talking about submitting to one another. But there, there's another problem here. Look closer at that. If I was preaching on chapter 5, verse 21, and I wanted to make a point, and I yelled here saying, Submitting! No, actually, I just did. <laughs> it wouldn't make sense. It needs another verb. Now, remember when Rob was preaching about Ephesians 1? He talked about how Paul loved these big, complex, run-on sentences. This is another one of them. To get to the primary verb here, you actually have to skip all the way back to verse 18. And if you read it from there, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, or the NLT says will ruin your life. True enough. Instead, be filled by the Spirit. There's the primary verb, be filled. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Oh. So as we're filled by the Spirit, these things start bubbling out of us, and submitting is no big deal, one to another. Now, this, I would say, is the lens through which we should view the rest of our readings today, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And it's good that we'll hold that in mind because Paul then springboards from that to what seems to be a really confusing and circular argument. He talks about wives, he talks about husbands, he talks about Jesus, he talks about husbands, he talks about wives, he talks about husbands, he talks about wives. Oh, please. Actually, it wouldn't have been confusing to the people in his day because he's using a common Greek literary structure called a chiasm. That's where you have a central point and matched around that central point are offsetting arguments, each one picking up what the other one said, zeroing in on a central point. So if you map it out, you end up with an eye chart. But you can see kind of on the left side here, there's an A at the top and an A1 at the bottom, um, a B, a B1, C, C1, etc. These all map toward each other. Zooming in toward the central point is that, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. This is the main point. Jesus will present the church in all of her glory to himself. It's the ultimate picture of unity. It's the ultimate being one. This is why he came. This is why he was crucified, that he could bring together all peoples of earth before him, loving him, presenting them to himself in glory. It's, now, he uses a picture of marriage to show kind of how the church union works, but he also uses the union between himself and the church to show us an ideal marriage. Now, along the way, it does show the husband's radical, upside-down, agape love for the wife, giving himself for her sake. And yes, it does say that wives should give up their agendas and get in line with their husbands. But if you're loving this way, that removes the battle for who's in charge. It changes things completely from inside out. And it's telling us that even in marriage, we should try to become one as much as possible. But then there's this little thing at the end where he says, you know, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Um, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. He realizes that we're all different and that the ideal is something that we're really going to stretch But again, as we let the Spirit move through us, it becomes easier. Now, one further point here. It does say that the husband is the head of the wife. In English, we typically read that as, you know, head of state, head of department, head honcho, boss, right? In Greek, it didn't have quite the same meaning. So if you say, you know, don't let your mind water, oh, this guy's heading out. It's like, hmm, these these are weird meanings, even in English, right? In Greek, it typically meant head, or it meant the most prominent part of, which certainly in the the Roman marriage, uh, the husband was the most prominent part, or it could mean source, kind of like headwaters. But... If they wanted to say leader or boss, in Greek, a different word was used. 
So this, it's not saying anything dictatorial here, right? Source does imply leadership. Most prominent part may imply leadership. But the leadership in this case is to sacrifice and to give and to build up, not to dictate to. Remember the lens through which we are looking at this passage, um, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a radical statement. And um, we can't make it happen by ourselves. Now, one other thing to note in this passage, then, if you read it this way, it's not actually mandating particular roles. In a marriage, you've got the freedom to structure the marriage the way you want. Um, you might decide that you really want somebody to be kind of the final decision point, right? Um, and that's okay. If you both agree to it, that's great. Uh, John Gargan is a dear friend, a family counselor, a marriage counselor, and he is a big fan of having some kind of hierarchy and defined roles in marriage. And John and Nan are a marvelous example of a marriage that works. So there's no prohibition there. Dasha and I are a little bit different. We've said since our early days that we split the authority 50-50, but you need at least 51% to get anything through. <laughs> it's worked out pretty well. We've been married now 22 years, eight months, two days, and about 22 hours. <laughs> she constantly reminds me. I, now, Dasha's also very, very resourceful. So earlier in our marriage, if we were stuck, she would recruit the cats to vote with her. <laughs> they were all girls. <laughs> Who can ever understand? But you know, the core message here is it's not dictating something. Rather, it's transforming attitudes and giving you an approach to each other that is really, really helpful. Now, if that's not enough, Paul does address the other major relationships in the household. So, for instance, kids, you know that you're supposed to obey your parents? Yeah, sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> Paul addresses that, and he says, you know, this is the first commandment with a promise, actually. If you honor your father and mother, it will go well for you, and you will live long. Wow, that's cool. And then he turns around and he turns the screws on the dads. Fathers, go easy on your kids. Be involved with your kids. In the Roman Empire, the dads would usually farm that out to the wife or the slaves or something like that. This is radically transforming that. And then, lastly... He talks to slaves and masters. Now, Paul does not endorse slavery. Right? He tells slaves, if you can get free, get free. Just don't sweat it wherever you are. Let Jesus in. So he tells slaves to sincerely serve and try to please their masters. And then he turns around and says a breathtaking thing. Masters, 
treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Wow. Treat my slaves the way I want to be treated? Are you joking? Thank God we don't have slavery anymore, but this kind of still holds true in some relationships, like, you know, boss and worker, foreman and crew. It, can, it has implications there. This way of approaching it is very much Jesus. It's not so much cultural. But it is a call for everyone, no matter your situation, to love and respect and consider others more important than you because that's what Jesus did for us. So then, I started out telling you that I had trouble with Paul. I did. Sometimes I still do. But I can't be mad at Paul. I still don't often understand what he's trying to say. But he calls us, and Jesus calls us, to lay down our agendas, to lay down our status, to lay down our preferences, to lay down our biases. The core message here is Jesus' love to us and through us. So we are blessed in relationships when we lay down our agendas, and we seek the other person's highest good. It's true in all of our relationships, and particularly in marriage. It was true then. It's true now. It's true for all times. So with that said, I'd like to invite the worship team back up. Um, and let's get ourselves ready to come before God in worship and praise. Uh, I sent this to my brother, actually, to kind of give me a proofread, because I really trust his input. And he came back with something, you know, it's like, well, people might be hearing you talk about, you know, being filled with the Spirit and how this then translates into all of this stuff. And people might feel like, ooh, there must be some roadblock here. Because it just ain't happening. It ain't flowing. The love ain't happening. Um, if that's your case, um, and you have not asked Jesus to come into your life and said, Jesus, I want to follow you, come forward. We'll have people who would love to pray with you um, and help you get started there. Or maybe you've believed for a long time and it's like, you know, it just ain't happening. I need more of the Spirit. Sometimes um, we're happy to pray with you for that. Sometimes there are things that are kind of blocking what the Spirit wants to do. That could be sin, that could be attitudes, that could be the need to forgive somebody. Um, and in making that step, things will start to flow a little bit better. If you've got something that's going on like that, please come forward. You know, the Scripture has a wonderful verse that says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Sometimes laying down things is the best way to get things going. And with that, 
Lord Jesus, thank you. Because you love us today. You loved us yesterday. You have loved us through all eternity. And we praise you for that. And we want more of that. Jesus, come and be glorified here. Holy Spirit, come and change our hearts that we could be more like Jesus. For you are good. Amen.